Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books and Catholic Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with William Marling to talk about his new book, Christian Anarchist, Eamon Hennessy, A Life on the Catholic Left, published by New York University Press, 2022. Eamon Hennessy was arrested over 30 times for opposing the entry of the United States into World War I. Later, When he refused to pay taxes that supported the war, he lost his wife and daughters and then his job. For protesting the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was hounded by the IRS and driven to migrant labor in the fields of the West. He had a romance with Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker, who called him a prophet and a peasant. He helped the homeless on the Bowery, founded the Joe Hill House of Hospitality in Salt Lake City, and protested the development of nuclear missiles becoming in the process one of the most celebrated anarchists of the 20th century. To our era, when so much protest happens on social media, his actual sacrifices seem unworldly. Eamon Hennessy was a forerunner of contemporary progressive thought, and he remains a beacon for challenges that confront the world, and especially the United States today. In this biography, William Marling tells the story of this fascinating figure who remains particularly important for the Catholic left, In addition to establishing Hennessy as an exemplar of vegetarianism, ecology, pacifism, Marlene illuminates a broader history of political ideas now largely lost, the late 19th century utopian movements, the grassroots socialist movements before World War I, and the anti-nuclear protests of the 1960s, a nuanced study of when, this is a nuanced study of when religion and anarchist theory overlapped. Christian Anarchist shows how Hennessy's life was at the heart of radical libertarian and anarchist interventions in American politics that not only galvanized the public then, but offers us new insights for today. And William Marling is a professor of English and world literature at Case Western Reserve University. Bill, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. Well, before we get into the contents of the book, can you talk a little bit about your academic background and the impetus for writing uh Christian anarchist, Eamon Hennessy and life on the Catholic left. Well, uh, although I was born in Chicago and grew up in Ohio, I went to the University of Utah for my undergraduate degree. And it was there as a freshman reporter for the campus newspaper that I wrote an obituary for Hennessy when he died. Now, at this point, I didn't really have any knowledge of his background. I knew that he was a local radical. Uh, I was also working as a night librarian at the Salt Lake Tribune, and one of my friends, the, a photographer, had just taken several pictures of Ammon protesting at the state capitol. So a mutual friend of ours, who was the news editor at the student newspaper, put those pictures together and my reportage, and we had a front page uh, tribute to him a few days after his death. 
And then I kind of filed this story away as something I would like to maybe do sometime later in my life. And I picked up bits and pieces over the years. Uh, there was a point where I was working in New York for Time Life, and a story that I had to do involved getting a Freedom of Information request. So I thought, well, while I'm doing this for this business magazine, I will also file a Freedom of Information request on Ammon Hennessy and see uh, what the FBI has. So uh, that was a very interesting process. And because it went out on Time Life letterhead, I got an immediate response and a huge file that was about 700 pages thick. Then at other points in my academic career, I came upon, I think, a name of one of his daughters, and she was in the phone book, and I called her up and did an interview with her. So I was accumulating this material for, oh, 35 years before I started writing the book, and then I made contact with uh, Ammon's ex-wife, Joan Thomas, and I really had a lot of help from old friends in Utah, people that I had known and worked with there and have still kept in contact with. So in one sense, it's a kind of end of the academic career book. It was something I had always wanted to do, and I accumulated all of the, the research. And there was some research help from my university. They paid for me to go do some research in uh, Wisconsin at the university uh, there and also in, at, in New York City and in Salt Lake. So, yeah, that's kind of a schematic overview of how the book was formed. The biggest help of all was Ammon's ex-wife, Joan Thomas. She's, yes, uh, who's, qu- who's quoted the most in the book. Um, now, now you, you've, writ- you've written, you wrote his obituary, which is fascinating. Did you ever see him in person or meet him in your time in Salt Lake City? Only driving by the place where he protested one day with the photographer, Mike Cassidy. And Mike pointed out the window and said, that's the guy that I took the pictures of. And I said, oh, and he was there with his big sign walking uh, spiritedly, uh, energetically in front of the state capitol. With his huge kind of head of uh, white hair, right? Pompadour hairdo, yes. (laughs) Well, before we discuss a bit into Hennessy's life, can we give a, a quick rundown of his own ideology, particularly as it relates to you're, you focus on this notion of embodiment. How does Hennessy's ideology relate to embodying protest and embodying anarchism? It, he didn't start out with that idea of embodiment as clearly as he ended. Uh, there were layers. There were He added Tolstoy. He added Gandhi. He was not a vegetarian until he was about 14. He was not a tax protester until he had to pay taxes. So this was incremental. And uh, embodiment is the concept that I use in the conclusion to explain his, uh, the totality of his practice and how it moved uh, from Tolstoy, who actually, you know, was a noble. He did not embody what he wrote in his books, how it moved from Tolstoy to uh, Gandhi. And I, I think that Ammon himself was constantly accreting 
layers of ideology and belief and practicing them. And also in the conclusion, I needed some kind of a rhetorical vehicle to explain away some of his harsher judgments against uh, some of his colleagues, such as the kind of ingracious things he said at one point about Dorothy Day. So that became, that's where I used the concept of parisia or fearless speech, which has become more current in academia in the last five or 10 years as we try to explain what's going on in contemporary politics. But it seemed to me particularly appropriate and with Hennessy, and maybe this is a bridge to discussing his earlier life, he had attended public schools in Lisbon, Ohio, that were strangely in advance of their time, or they imitated the local colleges. They had debating societies, and he was introduced to some of these figures from Greek rhetoric uh, there at the age of 14, 15, 16. Well, to take that bridge to his early life, can we give a sense of his political and religious encounters uh, up until the time that he's about in his early 20s before before he goes to prison? We'll speak about that later. Okay. Um, this is an aspect <clears throat> that I hadn't known anything about when I wrote about him in Utah, but he is from Eastern Ohio, an area that was heavily affected by the meth crisis, uh, strip mining, general poverty. It wasn't that way when he was growing up there, but it made it an interesting place for me to go and do research in these small towns. So even though he spiritually claimed ancestry with the Quakers, he was actually part of the Second Great Awakening, which was largely Baptist as it rolled through Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio after World War II. And uh, that his, his first awakening was in the Baptist church. He was baptized in the stream that ran by the farm where he grew up. And I could still go down there to the farm, to the creek and see the place where he had been baptized and the strip mines, it's all still there. Uh, so that made it really kind of exciting research to do. So he had these Quaker grandparents. Uh, his father had been an orphan who was kind of loaned out to a local land magnate. And his father was a kind of natural politician. So Hemessy was early on introduced to local politics, the difference between Republicans and Democrats and all of the issues. Mind you, these are the issues of the 1920s. So they're a lot different than the issues of the Civil War or today. And uh, then the family, when the landowner moved, the family moved to Lisbon, where his father was briefly mayor. But then another wave of the Great Awakening rolled through this part of the country. Uh, and it was a dry wave. It was Baptists who didn't drink. And uh, so his father, who did drink, uh, was voted out of office, uh, not before Ammon got a summer job at the local ceramics factory, however. And this is where he met up with the IWW, 
And he became a card-carrying member of the IWW when he was, I think, 14 or 15. We think of the IWW and we think of Joe Hill and we we have a very uh, militant view of it. But these IWW members also went to church together on Sunday. Uh, They, you know, they would probably be doing a Halloween party this weekend. (laughs) So it was the IWW, but with a very uh, Mahoning Valley inflection. Uh, they were very local in their militancy. And so the, 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 there's a lot of local influences in Hennessy's early formation. So um, he, he also um, missed a year of school uh, due to a kind of uh, bronchitis that he had. So he got a year behind in school when he came back. He was in these debating societies Now, by his own account, he was extremely tongue-tied as a young man, had a hard time getting a sentence out. But these debating societies, and there were four or six for each grade, uh, they debated the topics of the day, such as prohibition, uh, should we, you know, World War I was not yet in the wind, but uh, various European treaties, And uh, their teachers, apparently, to judge from the evidence in the student newspaper and the yearbooks, introduced them to Greek and Roman principles of debate and famous debaters. So that I found references in the yearbook to Hennessy comparing him to famous Greek rhetors or public speakers. And this was pretty astounding, given the state of high school education today, to think that in this meth-stricken, strip-mined valley of eastern Ohio in 1910, there had been such a high degree of civic polity. And then when I began to look into that, it turned out that when this part of the Northwest Territory was opened after the Revolutionary War, There was no government. The people just had to solve all of their problems by themselves. And so they were very self-organized. And I think that was a a factor in political life that Hennessy thereafter looked for in the Navajos and the Hopis, in the Mormons and the other groups that he was attracted to. So he came out of high school, uh, kind of tongue-tied, but during the summers, one of his Quaker, I'm putting air quotes around this, contacts lined up a job for him selling cornflakes door to door. This was also an oddity, which was just fascinating. And it was a kind of rabbit hole that I could have disappeared down for several months. The whole cornflakes industry, which was centered in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it, cornflakes were sold door to door Hammond and his brothers and friends went around with a sample box. And if you like them, you bought a case, <laughs> which was then delivered to the front porch. Uh, but this was practice at getting his shoe in the door and delivering a sales speech. So this was the first uh, lesson or uh, seminar in how not to be tongue-tied. So we did this for a couple of summers. 
improving his public speaking ability and eventually getting up to Wisconsin, Milwaukee, which was a center of socialism in the U.S. at that point, and meeting his future wife. Uh, Then he came back to Ohio. He went to Hiram College, which was a religious school, um, but one that had graduated a president and also the poet Vachel Lindsay. So it was not nowhere, so to speak. Uh, It's still a very nice small college. Uh, Many of his teachers had gone there. He only stayed there for a year and a half before he kind of went on the warpath with uh, his anti-World War I draft measures. And this was another very interesting area of research because I had no idea how much social pressure was brought to bear on young men to enlist in the army. Uh, I found out that every small town paper in Ohio published the names of all the young men who were eligible for the draft. So there was a kind of public shaming if one did not enlist. And uh, when Hennessy then started getting arrested uh, for the things he was saying, he was now down at Ohio State University, to which he had transferred because his family had moved out of Lisbon to Columbus. When he started getting arrested in Columbus and other places in Ohio, uh, his picture was plastered over the front page of the Lisbon paper, as well as the Columbus paper. So this anti-draft movement was, uh, to say it was not popular would be an understatement. You were socially an outcast if you were against the draft. It was an enormously courageous position to take as a 20-year-old, which is what he was then. However, have a question? No, no, no. Continue. Keep going? Okay. So another thing that turned up when I was investigating the trial uh, was that the anti-draft movement had been linked to an anti-rent movement. In other words, rent strikes. And I had no idea because Hennessy doesn't talk about it. And the idea that these various radical movements had liaisons with each other is just not talked about. It's just not discussed. Either one is a radical anarchist of the Sacco and Vanzetti uh, type, or one might be simply a self-contained draft protester. But the idea that Hennessy was also promoting rent strikes or at least spreading information about them. That was really new, and it made some other later pieces fall into place, such as his probable sympathy for rent strikes in Harlem when he was living in New York City seven or eight years later. And all of that data, all of that evidence came up at trial, and the FBI had it perfectly preserved, as photos in the book show. And there was even, uh, I was even able to talk to a woman in the FBI's evidence archive who had the material right in front of her. And so she picked it up and she turned it over and she told me what was on the opposite side. Uh, That was a really neat, neat bit of research to do. So tell us a bit 
you've already kind of indicated, but but just elaborate more on on why Hennessy went to prison. Okay, where he went, and then why that stay in prison, as you elaborate in a chapter, was so important on the rest of his political and religious life. He was promoting uh, resistance to registration for World War One, which initially had been part of the Socialist Party program. Now, the socialists were very strong in Ohio. There was a socialist mayor of Cleveland. There was a socialist candidate for president from Ohio. And in that sense, Hennessy was not out of step with local politics at all. But down in Columbus, the state capital, uh, home of Ohio State University, there was a political sense that order must be kept. (laughs) I'm not going to quote the German on that, but uh, he was now leading weekly uh, seminars on the teachings of the Communist Party. And uh, at the same time, he was being quoted in the Daily Lantern, the Ohio State University uh, student newspaper. So there's a good track record there of what was going on. And uh, he had a lot of these flyers printed up in two sorts. One group what you handed out, the other kind you plastered on store windows. And at a big speech uh, with a visiting speaker right on the corner of the most uh, important corner, downtown Columbus, he, he, he started running through the crowd and plastering these, uh, these flyers up. And uh, so that was a kind of minor infraction, and they sent the police out to look for him. Then he went on the road. And he went through Southern Ohio and then up through Eastern Ohio, uh, leaving his posters and other radical materials for local followers to distribute. But as these were collected by the authorities, it, it, it proved that he was advocating resistance to the draft, which was illegal and that he had done this with planning and forethought because there were letters between him and the printers. It wasn't for, oh, a couple of months until that he was caught. He went over into West Virginia. He distributed his materials in some of the coal mining towns there. And then, folly of follies, he came back to Columbus and he got his semi-radicalized sister and some of his friends to go downtown in Columbus one night and just plaster these stickers on all the store windows. Well, of course, the merchants got pissed off and they knew where he lived because his address was on the correspondence to the printer. So they came and arrested him. Uh, I think at that point he thought it wasn't serious. I think he was still in boisterous, high spirits, Um, But that was the end of his freedom for two years. So he was uh, had a very quick trial in Ohio 
uh, where he, he dramatized it. He said his only supporter was a, a Native American who came every day. But in fact, the newspapers reported that there were lots of people there. And even the Lisbon newspaper from his former hometown, uh, the Cincinnati, the Cleveland newspapers, they all showed up to cover this. This was a big deal. He and his, uh, his co-conspirators, uh, a printer and two other people who distributed it, were convicted. <clears throat> but the other three were basically let off because he was clearly the mastermind. So he was sent down to the Atlanta Penitentiary on a two-year uh, sentence and uh, quickly decided to do military, militant things there. He led a strike on the work line where all of the men threw down their wheelbarrows and they refused to carry bricks or cement. <coughs> he, his big protest that got him in the most trouble was uh, leading a food strike. All of the prisoners refused to eat their inferior food. And it was clear who had done this was the vegetarian guy. And uh, so that got him thrown in the hole. So he was down in solitary confinement, which was pretty grim. It was a, a room that was about eight feet by eight feet, had one small window. He got one meal a day. And across the hall, there was a convicted murderer who the guards were basically torturing. Uh, the warden came down and told him that that was going to be his fate as well, going to be uh, uh, tied to the wall and uh, left there for 10 hours at a time, unless he confessed as to who had led the food strike. And also he had to say that he had been plotting to blow up the prison. Uh, so he, uh, the warden said, you're going to spend the rest of your sentence in this dark hole down here. Now, um, Berkman, the famous anarchist, was also in prison, and Hennessy had only met him twice and gotten advice on how to uh, navigate the prison system. But he could see Berkman's picture, Berkman working in a, a factory, um, prison factory, out of his window. So that inspired him. But he still became really depressed, and he decided he, he, he should probably commit suicide. The only thing he had to read was the Bible. He'd pretty much given up on religion, except now he kept rereading the Sermon on the Mount. That makes sense. That's sensible. And then the incident with which I opened the book is his night of temptation, where he had sharpened a spoon, his only instrument, and thought he could cut his veins and bleed to death before the guards discovered him in the morning. But he had a dream in which he saw the pigs that were killed every winter on the family farm back in eastern Ohio. And he thought about how disappointed his Quaker grandmother would be. And he decided, yes, I can turn the other cheek. I can follow Jesus' precepts in the Sermon on the Mount. So that got him through. And he spent about six more months in solitary confinement. Then he was let out to serve the remainder of his time in a Columbus jail, nine months. Uh, and his girlfriend, future wife, came to see him every day. And of course, his parents still lived in Columbus. Uh, and that's how he got through that period of life. But he was kind of a stunned, uh, inhibited young man when he got out of prison. 
yes, he had the problems with pacing. He would consistently pace the room because he had learned to do that while in um, solitary confinement. In fact, reading that chapter on solitary confinement, I was struck by the similarities with monastic experiences. He, you know, emphasis on scripture reading, the rejection. I mean, he talks explicitly about not masturbating, the rejection of sexual and physical desires, not committing suicides, mystical or dream experiences. It was, it, it seemed that so, like he didn't know it at the time. And I don't, I don't even think he knew it afterwards, but there was like these kind of deep, deep similarities with that. But you mentioned Selma, his girlfriend, as he, who he meets as he goes back to Columbus. Briefly speak about the next phase of his life in which he marries her, and just just talk about their very strange and strained marriage, uh, and how that kind of how how a, a good it seemed like a good chunk of Hennessy's early Middle Ages was taken up just in the drama of his wife, Selma? That's a great question. Initially, they had this utopian project, which was after their time in New York City, to do the great hike, the big hike around the United States, an extraordinary adventure that took two years. Uh, They went some five or 7,000 miles hitchhiking and walking meeting thousands of people. But after that, the idea was that they would do a, 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 a an ecological farm. And it would probably be outside of Milwaukee at Waukesha, uh, which is where they ended up buying land. So they were on the same cord. They were working towards common objectives uh, for a long time. They had two daughters there in this uh, self-sufficient campsite. They heated their house with wood. They got water from a well. Uh, her relatives contributed some funds toward the building of the house. He built the house with her brother, with his own hands. Uh, so it looked like uh, a total uh, hippie project there, actually. But there were seeds of uh, difference when it came to raising the children. She wanted the children to have a musical education uh, that followed certain guidelines. um, And uh, that education was not to be found out here in this self-subsistence way of life. Now, he was supporting them by selling fuller brushes door to door. And this is not as uncommon as it sounds. And it helped him to further develop his public speaking. After the cornflakes days came the fuller brush days. It was very- and he would work with fuller brush for up until, I think in your biography, up until the 1960s. Until yeah, yeah, he came back to it in, uh, in Arizona. So they, there were several things that coincided. The Great Depression, the, the fall of the stock market in 29, meant that people were not buying fuller brushes. They didn't need a special brush for their cars or their refrigerators. Uh, so the brush market disappeared. 
He started on a job uh, at a dairy, but he was too radical for the people that owned the dairy. So they moved into Milwaukee where he got a job in the social work department, kind of strangely, an anarchist working for the government. But he learned a lot about structural poverty there. And uh, he was dealing with clients who would come in and say, we don't have enough uh, food. Uh, Italians would say they don't allow us to buy pasta or wine. He adjudicated and solved a lot of these problems and got a lot of material for his own propaganda and his own rhetoric. But Selma, while he was further... Uh, deepening his knowledge of socialism and socialist solutions, Selma was going off in a different kind of utopian direction through the education of the children. She was introduced to some religious folks who styled themselves as the I Am, which was a splinter religious movement. It was very big and very popular after the depression. And uh, the I am was basically a kind of Rosicrucianism, supposedly started by somebody in uh, Northern California in the Sierras. They had accidentally visited this place on their big hike around the United States, but neither of them had any idea that it was going to come back to be such a major factor, factor in their relationship. Well, he had been trying to convince her that she should become a Christian scientist or something a little bit more middle of the road. Uh, But she continued without telling him to follow the I am. And then he, he was about to get arrested again in Milwaukee. He, he provoked this. He went and, picketed outside conventions of uh, Shriners and other solid Americans. And so the police came and the second time they said, look, here, they did arrest him and he had to be bailed out. And this uh, was an affront to Selma before her group because they were pro-war. They were pro-big government. They were... uh, well, it's hard to, hard to describe their beliefs. They were a little bit uh, scattered. So she moved away to avoid the notoriety associated with her socialist anarchist husband. Right about the time she moved away, Dorothy Day and some of her colleagues, like Peter Morin from The Catholic Worker, came to speak in Milwaukee because uh, it was a kind of fertile recruiting ground for them. There were several independent Catholic organizations that were also very socialist in uh, northern Wisconsin. So he stayed behind and he, uh, he cultivated these uh, links to these new Catholic groups. He moved in with Selma's brother and he went back to his life of austerity, living on practically nothing, uh, trading, babysitting for rent, uh, until finally uh, it was pretty clear that there was no future in Milwaukee. The, the climax of this was that he and one of his good friends 
were put on trial for draft evasions, and the friend was convicted. But Ammon was basically told, dude, you're too old. You don't matter. Just get out of here. So he that, was, that, that was devastating, humili- humiliating yes, to Hennessy, who, who it seemed in the chapter had been really, as the war was becoming a reality and his drafting was becoming a reality, he desperately wanted to kind of relive the glory years of his World War I draft resistance and imprisonment. And here we are, World War II, and he can't even get himself sent to prison. Yes. <laughs> um, and they also tricked him. Um as he was leaving the courthouse, they asked him to sign uh, some document, and he thought it was pro forma. And uh, it turned out that it was an admission that he was eligible for the draft. Uh, that was all they needed to send a draft card to his house. And unwittingly, his sister-in-law signed for it while he was not there, thinking she was doing him a favor. So he came back home and it was, he was humiliated by the press for the second time. The Columbus Post-Dispatch really took out after him. Mr. Ammon Hennessy, uh, in his second uh, martyrdom at the public courts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but his friend Bill uh, did have to go and serve the time. So at this point, Hennessy said, well, there's nothing really keeping me here in Wisconsin, so maybe I'll just follow my wife, Selma, out to Denver. And so he goes out to Denver, and he's immediately able to get a job in a huge dairy. And he tries to organize the workers there, but they already belong to the AFL-CIO, which is also pro-war. Uh, Selma thinks he's getting a little bit too close to the kids, so she moves down to... Santa Fe, he follows. He again gets jobs in various dairies in the upper Rio Grande Valley and learns a hell of a lot about ecology there. This is where he really learns about water rights and he begins to learn about Native Americans. But again, she moves to escape him. And this time she goes to Los Angeles. Uh, Most of this time he was paying her rent or at least a substantial part of her expenses. He wasn't making a lot, but he was sending 90% of it to her and for the support of the two girls who were becoming musical prodigies. So um, yeah, let's see. So we've got him now to uh, Santa Fe and then down to Albuquerque. He stays in Albuquerque working on a big... uh, industrial farm for a couple of years. Uh, The attraction is uh, the Isleta Pueblo, just south of Albuquerque, where he proselytizes among the Native Americans, but he learns a lot. He sees this mixed community of Latinx and Native Americans and Anglos, and he thinks, wow, this is working pretty well. Uh, He starts writing to Dorothy Day, So they start this correspondence. Uh, World War II uh, starts, and the federal government is using an airfield just south of Albuquerque as a main training base, and it also starts sending German prisoners of war there, whom Hennessy is working with in the orchards there. Uh, Very strange experience, but the big thing is that they're developing the atomic bomb right over the hill. 
And so he and uh, Dorothy start writing back and forth about the, uh, the bomb. Uh, that bond is between them is growing, but it's strictly a correspondence. Uh, now, he really likes New Mexico, but he decides he has to be closer to the Hopis. He's mostly given up on Selma. She's in Los Angeles, uh, where the I Am is having a horrible catastrophe when their founder dies unexpectedly. <laughs> I won't go into the bizarre theory here of reincarnation that they embraced, but it's it's amazing that nobody has yet written a book on the I am. Uh, it's a topic rich in uh, possibilities. <clears throat> so he moves over to to northern Arizona, and uh, he is actually working in the fields. He is working as a common laborer at the age of sixty. <clears throat> He's getting on the bus and he's going out with the black cotton pickers and the Latinx workers. And he does this for about half a year. Uh, Then he hears about a better job down south of Phoenix and he moves down there. Um, After several short term jobs, he runs into this guy called Lynn Orm, who is known locally as the old pioneer. And the old pioneer and Ammon just really were made for each other. They hated agribusiness. They hated pesticides. And the old pioneer took Ammon onto his property, gave him a small house to live in for free, as long as he had first dibs on Ammon's work. Ammon stayed with the old pioneer until he died. And uh, so that's a very interesting chapter, the, the experience in New Mexico and Arizona. Now he and Selma, by this time of grown very, very distant. So we come to the end of one chapter here after Dorothy Day comes out from New York to spend about 10 days with Ammon. Nobody knows in detail what went on. Uh, It can be reconstructed from his letters and her letters, but they traveled around in Arizona and some parts of New Mexico. They got very close We don't know whether they were intimate or not, but they were really spiritually bonding in this point. Yeah, it's amazing the forbearance, but also delusional attitude that Hennessy had towards his wife. I mean, he would write these letters to her. She would express a very cultic, uh, cultish ideas about I am. And he would just be like, well, you know, that's your idea. And, you know, let's try to get, and he would, you know, desire to get a family with her for, you know, seemingly decades, but it never really came to fruition. He Um, tried to pull the family back together. Yeah, he did. He did. And, and, and that's commendable, but at, at, after, the you know tenth move and thousandth uh, dollar paid in in rent it, it seemed it seemed generally implausible uh, but but again I think that testifies to his deep absolutist character someone who did not kind of you know committed to lost causes he respected the fact that they had a credo even though it included this practice called uh, proclaiming uh, where they would uh, are yeah proclaiming. They, they basically, you know, I commit the spirit of so-and-so to the deity, and they said this over and over, and she forced this practice on their daughters. And their daughters, I think one of them married into the I am. 
if I remember. But the daughters basically, you know, they ended up in suburban Los Angeles County and they kind of fell away from the church. Ammon was able to go visit them and <clears throat> take them down to the ocean and uh, take them on hikes and certainly visited them later in life. Well, speaking of later in life, Hennessy, you know, as you, as you describe, is in his 60s. He's working as a day laborer. He's working as an irrigator. Uh, some of his own descriptions and correspondence about the amount of work he did is uh, extremely impressive for someone of that age, working 10, 12, 14-hour days. And then at the same time, still engaging in a very long and detailed correspondence and writing career. And, and, and so just a question about Hennessy's life choices. Why did he continue working as a laborer? Why did he never think, I'm going to just be a freelance writer, a kind of public intellectual, uh, a kind of professional protester? Why did he always feel like he had – I mean, I know that there's the marriage component, but was there any other reason why he felt like he needed to work uh, in menial labor throughout his life? In one sense, he was lacking some fundamental skills, like he did not know how to drive. He, having resisted getting a social security card so that he didn't have to pay a war tax, he was not employable by conventional employers, only by people who would hire you without a social security card, in other words, under the table. He liked to be paid in cash at the end of the day or the end of the week. So the, these were big limits. You, you, don't, uh, you don't drive. <clears throat> you refuse to pay tax. He even tried to get out of paying tax when he got on the bus. And, uh, you know, you don't have a Social Security card. There's no, he never had a pension of any kind. He never got Social Security. So that's kind of immobilizing. But in another sense, the answer to your question is that he did try to do these things when he moved to New York City. He became a public street corner intellectual there. And in one sense, that's the real glory period of his life. Although there was a long, long preparation. There was. So... This is a book entitled, in its subtitle, A Life on the Catholic Left. And I guess uh, a big question as we move into his New York period where he's living at the Catholic Worker House with Dorothy Day. He is engaged in this long correspondence with her, a very awkward one, nonetheless. Uh, eventually, he becomes Catholic. Right. But the question is, was he and, – and, and you know, answer this question, the whole, kind of the rest of the scope of his, of his life. Was Hennessy really Catholic? And, and what was his relationship to the faith, to the church, uh, throughout the rest of his life? Well, there's no denying that Dorothy Day was his entree into Catholicism and that he thought, well, if this faith can hold Dorothy Day, it can also hold me. I don't think uh, he, you know, studied the lives of the saints or anything like that. But he was uh, baptized into the church after a long self-education in fundamental Catholicism. The important thing is to remember that Catholicism has never been monolithic. It's always encompassed all of these 
smaller isms and sects and schools and that there have been Italian anarchists going back into the 1700s. And there still are anarchist villages in Italy. So it's it's not as monolithic a faith as a lot of people outside assume. It's uh, it in and it can incorporate a quite wide variety, especially on the left. So Hennessy thought, okay, here are the, he hadn't found another adequate religion. When you're in rural Arizona, there's no, no, there's not even really a Baptist church there. There, no, there are a few Quakers locally that he associated with. He found them out. But it looked like Catholicism in New York City with its uh, daily worker newspaper and also a press and an organized social movement and being in the vanguard of protests against the bomb and World War II, this was the answer. There's Dorothy Day. He thought maybe she was going to be his wife because it was certainly over with Selma. So he, he was a Catholic before he got to New York City. And Dorothy Day came out to someplace in the Midwest where this um, First Communion and uh, baptism all took place. So he came into New York City and he's living in the very top of the Catholic Worker House. As I say in the book, uh, this place was really roach infested and filthy and most of us would turn away in horror. He and his roommate used to put the feet of their beds into cans of kerosene so that the roaches would not crawl up the legs of the bed, but it didn't matter. They still dropped off the ceiling. Yes. Them. <laughs> and he, he didn't even come with clothes. He didn't really need to because you dressed yourself out of the donations pile in the basement. You just went down to the basement and found some clothes that more or less fit you, and that's what you wore. And uh, more than one of his in, uh, his interviewers said he, he looked as though he'd been uh, just dressed in a whirlwind uh, in New York. Uh, so it, it was a very it was and is a very interesting social experiment. I was to the Catholic Worker when I was writing. The book, and you know, I came at nine o'clock in the morning, and the soup line was already forming. And when you go in, the people are getting ready to go on protests to the UN or to City Hall. It's still a very vital center of protest, just not as big. And you know, when you're missing Dorothy Day, you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle, a kind of uh, superstar. So, you have, so yeah. yeah, go ahead. So New York is, Hennessy's is in your words, golden age, right? He's the kind of protest activist intellectual he'd always wanted to be. But he leaves New York and he goes to Utah. What made Hennessy leave New York? What, what, why did he eventually get tired of the city? Well, there were a couple of factors. <clears throat> First, the relationship with Dorothy did not work out. He had not appreciated from a distance how much work she had to do, that she had to negotiate with the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in the most important city in the United States, that she had to 
deal with the fire department, the housing department, that people died in the Catholic worker house, that she had to get them buried, that homeless pregnant women came and she had to have their babies delivered. She was just busy all the time, so busy that she went on a retreat about once every two months to clear her head. There were also Catholic worker farms over in New Jersey and in upstate New York. Those were formally under her purview. And she just didn't have time for him. Uh, And he hadn't realized how busy her life was when she wasn't with him driving around in the desert. So he... With his flamboyant hairdo and his very outspoken ways, acquired a number of acolytes, uh, male and female, but particularly young women who wanted to be associated with this flamboyant radical. And uh, Dorothy began to think that there was something going on there. Some of them were very good looking. Uh, So she, uh, uh, she accused him. Uh, relations got bitter. Um, there was one in particular who would end up going to Utah with him, but he also met uh, his future wife, Joan Thomas, there. The other factor, there are two more factors. One is he hadn't anticipated the schisms in ideology at the Catholic Worker, that there were various ways even within the Catholic worker ideology of approaching big problems like homelessness or uh, the war or what to do, that there were internal battles. There was the distributionist group who basically uh, were socialists, and then there was a, an agrarian group who followed the teachings of Peter Morin. He didn't want to get involved in that. He'd, he'd already done the agrarian Route And he knew that self-sufficiency was the uh, route that worked. There was, after the first year, a decreasing number of possibilities of protest. He kind of used them up. He'd gone from New York down to Florida to protest uh, nuclear missiles. He marched up to Connecticut to protest nuclear missiles on submarines. And he had gone out and got himself arrested and imprisoned for protesting nuclear missiles in Nebraska. That was a short sentence, about six to nine months. Came back to New York. He was a star. But what was he going to do next? There wasn't really any relationship with Dorothy left. Uh, He didn't want to get involved in the internecine politics of the paper. And uh, he'd done all that he could do. Uh, And he'd always had this idea that he would found his own Catholic worker house. And the good place to do it, he had just passed through, he had never lived there, was Salt Lake City. He kind of liked the Mormons' idea of uh, just splitting off from the federal government, being self-sufficient, and that the Mormons allowed breakaway sects to move out to the desert. So that's where he, he made a reconnaissance trip. He spoke at the University of Utah in 1960 or 62, sometime around then. And then he came with um, his artist girlfriend who painted the religious murals. Um, and she's still living in New York City. 
to uh, to set up the Joe Hill House. So, uh, yes, yeah, so he's in Utah, and as you mentioned in your time in Salt Lake City, you see him protesting from a distance, but nonetheless. And in New York, he many kind of left wing intellectuals, uh, as well as important celebrities like the the great Steve Allen, uh, knew him. He was just this kind of uh, like a perennial presence anywhere he went who had seemingly innumerable connections. So a question I have is how did Hennessy protest? Because it seemed that he had both like an external way of doing it, but also he had developed an internal with regards to fasting. So what was the the kind of Hennessy program of protesting in his later um, years in the yeah, 60s? A great question I because I omitted the fasting, which really started in Arizona. Um, and it was a Lent fast initially. Uh, he then bumped it up to 40 days. Um, this was an extraordinarily long time to fast. Now, there are stories about him having minor uh, violations of the fast, but those mostly Coca-Cola. date to the Utah period, right? Yeah. <laughs> Coca-Cola is just to clean out your mouth. But, uh, <laughs> Still, in the New York period, where there were observers all around, uh, he's an amazing faster. He would go uh, 30, 40 days on just water. So the, the fasting uh, increases uh, in the New York period particularly. Starts in Arizona, gets longer. It's more visible to fast in New York City or in Washington, D.C., as he did. And he was very tactical about these things. He would pick it in front of, say, the Nuclear Energy Commission at the most visible time of the day and then go rest, lay down on the lawn. He also fasted in the heat at the Las Vegas branch of the AEC, not at the testing grounds, as some previous Catholic radicals had, but he chose the most visible place. And he got coverage from the Los Angeles papers and from even Japanese papers when he did this. Um, This was something that he had not polished to such a high art when he was in Arizona, but he really learned how to use the press to his advantage in New York City. And then he tried to carry those skills to Salt Lake, but there are only two newspapers and a couple of TV stations. And uh, TASS, the Russian news agency, did come to cover him in Salt Lake City, but he wasn't there. Ironically, a Mormon elder uh, escorted the TASS reporters around and showed them where Hennessy worked and where he protested. But his routine was to get up go to an early mass, then go get his donations of fruits and vegetables, and he did serve them in meat. Uh, Then he would clean up the Joe Hill house, and then he would go protest, uh, usually from, say, noon until five. Then he would come back to the Joe Hill house, and there would be a kind of nightly education Seminar, he would talk to the people or he would have folk singers in, like uh, U. Utah Phillips, who came along in the 60s. And uh, then he would have the men come in. He had to take all kinds of things away from them. He had to take away weapons, 
booze, uh, and he had a place for, he had a drunk tank in this little building. And he also had for the first the girlfriend and later his wife living in nearby apartments. And this was a part of the city that was, uh, well, first they were downtown. Okay, so that was kind of neat and simple. Now, then they went moved to West 2nd South. That was a more complicated neighborhood, prostitution and drugs and all kinds of things. And of course, the city health department and the city housing department and the police were always coming by to make sure he was following the rules to the letter, which he wasn't. But And the Joe Hill house was basically his version of the Catholic worker house within Salt Lake City, but minus the overt Catholicism. Right. There was no religion of any sort practiced inside the Joe Hill house except pacifism. And yeah, there's a great interview on YouTube uh, when he was in, I think, I think it was his first Joe Hill house. He said, there are only two things prohibited, no booze and no cops. Yes. <laughs> great simplicity. Um, so what happens to, to Hennessy? Uh, it seems that the Utah Health Department or Salt Lake City Health Department foils his plans at Joe Hill house. He's married to his final wife. Uh, what happens towards the, the towards the end of, of Hennessy's life? Well, uh, what happens to all of us? He, <laughs> yes. Uh, he gets older. His energy begins to wane. Um, these setbacks with the health authorities uh, are actually fairly significant for somebody who's older and has put all this time and energy into establishing uh, an enterprise like the Joe Hill House. A lot of people from the Catholic Worker House in New York City stopped by to help him. They installed stoves and refrigerators. They helped paint. They served as temporary cooks. But running the Joe Hill House took about 20 hours a day. There wasn't much time to really sleep. And then when it gets closed down, he's looking at the same process all over again but in a less favorable part of town. Because by this point, he was so well known as the proprietor of this establishment that attracted hobos and drunks and alcoholics. Nobody wants him in their neighborhood. Uh, the ex- downtown property is too expensive, so he goes down south. Uh, and uh, then the people dropping off the trains have to walk 30 or 40 blocks and they're traipsing through working class neighborhoods where people don't really want them and they're pissing on the lawn. And so he, once he, his options for the Joe Hill house got outside of the downtown area, he became very unpopular with the neighbors. And uh, also he became harder to find. He's off the main freeways. He's south of the railroad yards. And so it's harder for the indigents who need him to find him. And uh, he's getting old and he's got a wife who's not particularly into the project. She is a painter, she's a writer, and she loves to go hiking in the mountains. And uh, so eventually when they get thrown out of the, or the third house collapses, let's put it that way. It's taken over by the residents who were a little bit crazy. And it turns out that they were getting uh, 
Red Cross or not Red Cross uh, social security payments that indicated they didn't need to be staying at the Joe Hill house at all. <clears throat> so uh, Ammon and Joan said, well, let's take a vacation from this. And so they went back down to Phoenix, and that's when he went back to selling Fuller Brushes door to door to support them. But um, he got pneumonia. Uh, he had to stop. <clears throat> and then he probably got pneumonia a second time. So his health was, was kind of broken. Then they moved back to Salt Lake, and he tried to take up the, uh, the old routine again. But one day, uh, picketing uh, up at the state capitol where I had seen him, he has a heart attack. And so that was the beginning of the end. At first, it looked like it was a survivable heart attack, but it wasn't. He died in the hospital about two weeks later. So basically, uh, his health broke down. You know, this was a guy who, who never went to the doctor because he was, air quotes, too healthy. His vegetarian lifestyle, he believed, had given him a level of uh, invincibility or health. And, and by all accounts, this is true. Except for his teeth. Except for his teeth. Which were very gnarly right. and talks about. Um, well, fascinating. So a penultimate question before we end. Uh, give Just give a, a quick assessment of Hennessy. What are his legacies? Uh, you mentioned earlier about some of his anarchist ideas that have relevance or resonance today. But just in your own idea, what what can what can Hennessy teach us contemporaneously uh, or speak to us uh, in the 21st century? Well, the context is a little bit different now than it was in the <clears throat> 60s and 70s. But Hennessy back then was enormously important in persuading young men to become conscientious objectors. And now that we don't have a draft, uh, this is less of a, a factor in the minds of the general public and particularly young men. But I know several people who were persuaded to file their CO papers because of what they heard Hamnesy say. And it helped that in Salt Lake, surprisingly, there was a very lenient draft board uh, that heard CO papers and approved them. So, in the, and there's a good quote in the back of the book in which I uh, cite uh, somebody saying that, you know, people who met him were changed. And they particularly were changed in a, they were emboldened to resist war, the war in Vietnam. Uh, that's a, uh, you know, it's not like we're on the cusp of any particular war, but we've also been desensitized to the possibility that war and or a draft could come back. So Hennessy's one of his two major emphases has been a bit defanged by the lack of a draft. But on the other hand, his very early synthesis of Anarchism, ecology, uh, the whole bodily health embodiment, uh, the idea of there being a rhetoric of this, and uh, a couple other isms I could fold in here. That, that really hadn't been done. Uh, you know, kind of Gandhi in America thing hadn't been done maybe since Thoreau. 
So I think that's a really important legacy. So, Bill, thank you again so much for joining the podcast today. Uh, a final question before we go is what future research projects do you have on the horizon? Well, I'm returning to something that I've written about a lot, which is American noir detective novels and film noir. And so my new project is called 50s Noir, and it's about the way in which the noir emblems and icons and actors and motifs of the 30s and 40s, which we conventionally think ended with World War II, actually come surging back in slightly different forms in the 1950s. Uh, And some of the chapters take place specifically in the West. There's a chapter called Desert Noir, which uh, has a kind of fate link to uh, Hennessy in that I, I look at the peculiarity of Las Vegas becoming a vacation spot for Los Angeles actors. They used to go out and have drinks and watch the nuclear tests being done. One of my favorite desert noirs is one of the best films of Mickey Rooney, which is called Drive a Crooked Road. Have you seen that one? No, but I'm writing down the name. Absolutely, uh, written by Blake Edwards. Absolutely fantastic. It's uh, performance. Kevin McCarthy is in it. Rooney plays a basically driver who who helps these two robbers maneuver through a desert road to avoid capture. It's a very uh, depressing bleak noir, one of the one of the more bleaker ones. But anywho, that sounds absolutely fascinating, Bill. I, I love noir and crime fiction. I'll be definitely looking forward for that. Uh, and again, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this wonderful, engaging book, Christian Anarchist, Eamon Hennessy, A Life on the Catholic Left. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Fantastic. Well, you have been listening to New Books and Catholic Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, speaking about William Marling's new book, Christian Anarchist, Eamon Hennessy, A Life on the Catholic Left, published by NYU Press 2022. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.